Welcome to Essential NOLA Cinema, a conversation between cinephiles about the past and future of New Orleans movies. My name's Randy Mack, and I'm pleased to have the great Mr. Glenn Petrie with me today to talk about 1958's King Creole, a film directed by Michael Cortese and produced by Hal Wallace. Glenn, how are you? I'm doing wonderful. I'm doing wonderful, all things considered. Yes, indeed. It's been it's been nice seeing you and Michelle wandering through the neighborhood. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of work from home lately, and uh, this podcast has been a big pet project of mine. I've been considering starting one a little while, but somehow this winter, three separate people really encouraged me to do it. And I thought, now's the time. Everyone's got free time, and, <laughs> and I certainly do. Uh, and it's great to be able to have the kind of wonderful cinephile conversations that I used to have in bars and restaurants. We now get to do it over Skype. <laughs> you know, you g- grew up in Cutoff, Louisiana, if I'm not mistaken. How long have you been living in New Orleans? Ah, that's a tricky question. The We bought the house here in 99, but we were living at a place in Los Angeles, and we still had the big house on the bayou. Um, and so it was sort of between the three, and then it was after Katrina that this became main residence. And then, uh, and I guess 2010 or 2011, as we were renovating the firehouse, which is where, where I am now, uh, it's our studio, uh, that uh, we sold off the other places and said we're living in one spot in New Orleans, so you know, full time since, uh, yeah, or 10 years now. So 20 plus if you count part time. And then, I mean, it was, I had lived here before for stretches. Uh, I mean, when I was a kid, this is where you would come. It was an hour and a half away, a little longer hitchhiking. This is, this is where you'd come to hear music at the warehouse or, you know, see movies or buy books or all those things. Sure. Sure. So, uh, do you remember when you first saw King Creole? much later than you think. Um, it was not a movie I knew. Uh, and then I was doing, uh, I got hired to do a book. The University Press of Mississippi did this series of books on folk foods of the South. The watermelon book, the sweet potato book, the catfish book. And they hired, <laughs> me, to, they hired me to do the crawfish books. Okay, okay that'd be fun. And someone, I think it was Nick Spitzer. I don't know if you know Nick as a radio show. Nick said, well, you know, you got to put uh, the song Crawfish in there by Elvis Presley. And I thought he was kidding at first. He says, oh, no, no, it's a, it's a real song. It's in the movie. Uh, and so I looked up King Creole and, and just fell in love from the first screening. I mean, if you're used to thinking Elvis movies, like, uh, I mean, <laughs> name one. There were like 30 of them. Roused about. <laughs> roused about and, and there's one in hawaii and there's one in viva las vegas and there's one on like a houseboat in paducah kentucky and there's you know just they'd move them around but the plot's basically the same and it's just an excuse to have elvis sing songs and there's always a romance and and this elvis sing songs and there is not, not one romance but two it's a love triangle or intersecting triangles uh, but it's a damn good movie and with a stellar cast, yeah. I mean, Elvis is at his best. And and the rest of the, you know, people like Walter Matthau are in it, uh, like Vic Morrow's in it, uh, Carolyn Anderson's in it. I don't know if people remember the old Adams Family TV show. She was the mother. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, Morticia. 
Yeah, Carolyn Jones. She's great. Carolyn Jones. Although in, in this movie, she—I mean, she plays the babe. She plays the the femme mm-hmm. fatale. Mm. Not not at all campy the way it was in the TV show. You know, so it's a great movie. I mean, it's stellar behind the camera. Hal Wallace, uh, Michael Curtiz, who gave us, you know, Casablanca, gave us, you know, mm. one of my all-time favorite movies, The mm. Adventures of Robin Hood. Yep. which has what may be my favorite line ever in cinema. When the sheriff of Nottingham, played by Basil Rathbone, spits out, you speak treason. And Robin Hood, who's being played by Errol Flynn, says, fluently. <laughs> <It's just> so, <laughs> so, but uh, so you had him, uh, you know, who also gave us another great line. His movie gave us another great line in cinema, round up the usual suspects. And then King Creole, which is so... Pays homage to the cliches, but does not succumb to them. Mm. Cliches about the French Quarter, about New Orleans. It's also, and although Ron Shelton, who wrote it, is a friend, it's a better look at the heyday of Bourbon Street than Blaze, the the Paul Newman movie, (laughs) was. Right. It's, you know, the music is great, not just the Elvis songs, but, but the other stuff. And then, again, the opening of the film is Mm. Elvis on a balcony on Royal Street and a vendor going by in her wagon with the mule or horse pulling the wagon. She's an acclaimed jazz singer. I I, I did some research into it. uh, Oh, really? Yeah, her name is Kitty White. Kitty White. Well, Kitty could belt out a tune. And they do this great duet called Crawfish. I don't know who wrote the song. But uh, it's, I mean, it's wonderful. And that's, yeah, I mean, I, I put the lyrics in that book I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I love this movie. I stumbled on it a few years after I moved uh, to New Orleans. I moved here in 06. And the, uh, I had never seen a, an Elvis movie of any kind. I'd, uh, somehow I had missed Clambake and Rastabout and, and so on. And uh, I did not know how stellar the creative team was behind it. So I, I remember putting in the DVD... And then suddenly I see a Hal Wallace production, a Michael Curtis film, and I'm thinking, this is these are the the people who put together Casablanca. I mean, this is incredible. And then when the lady selling the crawfish starts singing, and then he starts singing with her, I thought this is amazing. The photography is gorgeous. And my understanding of from research the history is that New Orleans had a, a, a very kind of citywide street cart culture um, back in the early 20th century. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. And so. That's, you know, historical, not, you know, Hollywood contrivance that she'd be walking through the street singing and uh, and selling. My grandfather and my uncle would go with him as a boy, had a truck down in Cutoff. And in the colder months, he'd bring up oysters and in the warmer months, he'd bring up potatoes or whatever. And they would come to the French market and, you know, stay there, sleep on the potatoes, sleep on the oysters, stay there until they <laughs> sold out. And I was asking Uncle Elvis, uh, different Elvis, uh, Elvis Schaber, you know, well, who'd buy from you? And he said, oh, it was the vendors. And he said, and oftentimes they would, they would load up their cart uh, from the back of their truck and they would be crying out, you know, I got potatoes, I got, before they were out of earshot. Before they, 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 you know, so it's very, as you point out, it's very much accurate. Yeah, it, it's truly something I, I kind of miss. Um, I've always lived in basically a very small piece of New Orleans. I've been here almost 15 years now, but the uh, 
the, my all my residences have been from the edge of the lower quarter on the on the Marini line to the Marini Triangle to the Central Marini and now to the Upper Ninth Ward. Um, I've always lived in about a quarter mile stretch of the river curve here. And, and my first apartment was on Bourbon Street between Barracks and Esplanade. I, I remember walking down St. Philip Street past uh, McDonough School where they shot some of King Creole. And I heard uh, a mule carriage tour guide telling his people that uh, Elvis had personally helped construct the school. Well, I guess when he was working as a bricklayer or something, and he helped build the school or something. A stretch. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and that was part of the reason I eventually went and rented the movie, because I kind of wanted to know what, what had been going on. And, of course, it's all... I mean, much of it is shot on location. They did some set work on Paramount Lot, but you can tell that a lot of those interior apartments are actually real because of how they were, the, the windows and the architecture and things. It was unusual to do that, but Curtis had already won his two Academy Awards at that point, and he had the clout to demand uh, location shooting, and of course, Hal Wallace as well. I, sus- I don't know for a fact, but I suspect most of those interiors were not shot in New Orleans. They were shot back in L.A., but he had the clout instead of just repainting a set from something else to have them build accurate, mm-hmm. you know, because they certainly had the, the skills. Uh, it was just they usually didn't want to waste the money. <laughs> that, if that's true, that's uh, they did a tremendous job recreating those. There, especially, there's a scene at the beginning of the movie that, in fact, really the inciting incident of the whole film is when Elvis saves Carolyn Jones from those men who are abusing her, and they, he, they back out of the club onto the street, and you can see the street behind them. I spent a lot of the time re- re-watching this movie, like, trying to figure out the exact locations and things. It was kind of, kind of fun to play a New Orleans geography, you know, spot the balcony, et cetera, et cetera. The address Elvis gives for his home is 29 Royal Street, which I, I looked it up in the map, and it's basically right next to Unique Grocery, one of the sketchiest places on earth, I think. <laughs> we did this immersive film, this four-walled film, open a, a Actually, a year ago this week, and it runs at 520 Royal Street, and and there's you know it's like the French Quarter by Night is the title, but it it loops 300 years of the city, and there's a section on films about the French Quarter, and there must be 30 of them. You see clips going around you, and it starts with one, and you know, but it starts with King Creole, because we got one of the uh, we were shooting in one of the carriages. And got the character, you know, what do you know about this movie? King? Oh, yeah. And he went, drove us past, and he's talking, show a point, not the balcony, which I don't know if it's the right <laughs> balcony. But he's pointing out the balcony and said, Elvis was here and this and that and everything else. So that's what leads into Elvis singing. And, of course, that leads into all the other million movies, as you well know, that were, were either shot here or things like Saratoga Trunk that weren't shot here but were set here. It's a funny thing about the the origin. The, the film is so very New Orleans-y in, in so many ways. It gets so many details right. And just the types of personalities, the sort of the feeling that the, the film gives you uh, palpably but very subtly that it's a kind of lawless environment. There's no police enforcement whatsoever. There are no cops. There's no, right, you know, right. <laughs> there's, there's, right. It's, it's just a, it's not cops and robbers. It's Elvis and robbers. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but the film was actually based on a, a novel called a, a Stafford. Al Robbins, who made <laughs> yes, these, huge, right. yeah. you know, these huge pot boiler, uh, and, very melodramatic, but large scale and sold zillions and zillions of copies. Mm. It's about a Jewish family in Brooklyn. 
And, oh, that um, yeah, and apparently it was Hal Wallace's idea to set it in New Orleans. The original casting, he wanted, you know, James Dean and Ben Gazzaro were his two first picks. And then Dean died tragically, and Gazzaro, I guess, was unavailable. And then they had the idea of Elvis. And he was, and Wallace, was almost uh, unavailable. The army, yes, right. He had to get a deferment to finish King Creole. Kind of cool. The last movie before Elvis shaved his head. <laughs> Michael Curtis was very reluctant to, to hire Elvis, but he eventually agreed after meeting him. The, he thought he would be a sort of snotty, you know, pop star, but he turned out to be not only humble and eager to please, but also a, quite a good actor. Well, he There's had to the, realize uh, that this was an opportunity for him. True, definitely. He could sing, but he, but he was no fool. He was singing, he had his demons. But he was no fool, and he had to realize what a chance this was to show what he could do because the expectations were going to be high, and a lot was going to be demanded of him, but it was going to be demanded by people who knew what they were doing Yeah. and, and had the clout and had the resources and could pull in very good actors. My suspicion is they weren't, you know, Walter Matthau wasn't doing it because it was an Elvis movie. He was doing it because it was a Michael oh, yeah. Curtis movie. Yeah, multiple Oscar winners. I mean, the, those guys are... You know, they're legendary, even in their time. I, I think it's funny that um, the one stipulation Michael Curtis had for Elvis is he demanded he shave his sideburns. <laughs> <laughs> which, uh, that, which, which, I uh, wish there was footage of that. Uh, <laughs> that barbershop uh, visit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder if he had it done at Checkpoint Charlie's. Um, <laughs> which wasn't around back then, I'm sure. But uh, it's a funny thought, though. Yeah. Um, John Wirt wrote a great article for 64 Parishes about the 60th anniversary of King Creole, where, where there's a lot of information. I recommend anybody listening look that article up for a, a very cool, uh, detailed look at, at the history of the film and uh, Elvis mania coming to New Orleans for, I guess they only shot here for about 11 days of the production. But um, on this rewatch, I was really struck by how well-written and well-plotted the film is. It doesn't have the writers of Casablanca, but the people who, who adapted it did a great job, and some of that dialogue really, really sings. The way that Danny Fisher kind of keeps coming, keeps getting over his head, and the escalating problems he, he encounters flow so naturally, even though it's... it's um. It's really only got like seven or eight characters. The way the, the, these worlds intersect is so organic. Um, and the, the rationale, the logic of the, of the plot is, is just so airtight. I remember thinking like, I mean, the writing, they did just a, a fantastic job with the writing of it. And there's a lot of sort of emotional turns that the main character has to do. And a lot of long dialogue scenes, especially with his father and, and his sister, where, he's, where he, he's sort of working through something that has just happened to him and changing his trajectory slightly and so on. And Elvis does a, just a great job with all of that material. And that supporting cast is killer. I've always been fascinated by the club owner mentality and especially Bourbon Street, which has traditionally been kind of, I think mafia might be too strong a word, but there's certainly people who work outside the law in a lot of ways and have Tradition, traditionally have had these skirmishes. Jack Ruby used to hang out there, so. <laughs> okay, interesting. Yeah, so that says something. <laughs> it might not be too strong a word. I did not know that about Jack Ruby, huh? That's interesting. Yeah, there's a great article about the history of the Marcello family, a long three-piece deep dive. Here uh, it's Marcello. Marcello. Carlos? They don't do it Italian style. They, Marcello. Uh, 
Got it. Okay, interesting. See, I'm I'm a immigrant myself, and seeing how the sort of the history of New Orleans is affected by waves of people coming in and and shifting the culture slightly, but how there's a certain no matter what part of New Orleans history you choose to dive into, there's a certain fascinating sameness to the culture. It seems to have resisted, you know, American and colonial influence and kept its culture truly unique, even while absorbing so many different kinds of, you know, cultural and ethnic identities. It, it's really, it's really a wonderful aspect of the city. I'm, I'm actually wearing my, uh, my, Dirty Coast, History of New Orleans, Tree Rings <laughs> shirt. Well, you know, you know, the movie's King Creole, and if if you look, I mean, you go back to the Louisiana Purchase, it was basically a French and Spanish city, an African city, uh, and then the Americans bought it because they wanted, they wanted to control the Mississippi River, and between 1803, when the Purchase happened, for like within seven years half of the city was English speaking, but then the Haitian revolution happened and you oh. had all the Creoles who came, which doubled the population of new Orleans and none of them spoke English. So, so they were, you know, the English speaking American minority became a, a small minority again, like and overnight. it took decades to, to get back. I mean, the French quarter too kept changing. I mean, it was, it hadn't been French in a while. The architecture oh. is Spanish. Yeah. Uh, in 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 the fifties, you were more likely to hear Italian or, or or Sicilian than you were to hear French in the French Quarter. I mean, it was French still spoken, but there was a, I mean, they called it Little Palermo. Really, that's amazing. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was the ghetto. It was uh you know through from the eighteen nineties uh, for decades after. Yeah. I've observed that when I talk to my friends who moved here in the 80s or 90s, or even the people who grew up here, they talk about how there was used to be a street in the quarter you wouldn't cross. Like, they say, oh, nobody went below St. Philip, or nobody went below Ursulines, and that line seems to have been moving downriver um, over the generations. Right. And um, now it's on the far now... side of the Industrial Canal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's true. I was worried about when, um, you know, I, I, like I said, I moved here in 06. The first iPhone came out in 07. Social media, Twitter, and um, so forth really got going around that time. And I, I remember speculating to a friend about how social media was going to uh, change tourists' habits, how secret, secret neighborhood spots and so forth would suddenly be exposed on sites like Yelp and uh, and Travel Advisor and, and so forth, and Airbnb wasn't even a thing, but now Airbnb has really thrown the 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 whole culture into a into a tailspin. It seems yeah. like. Well, they're not they're not real full right now. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Do you know my first movie to hit the big screen was about a family during in in quarantine during an epidemic? No. What 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 film? I was it was called Yellow Fever. I was twenty one when I shot it. Yeah. Wow. Were you a film school person, or were you just a film lover your whole life and you put together? I mean, because independent films, you're you're talking about the eighties, right? I'm talking about the eighties. It was uh, no, no. I'm talking about it been nineteen seventy seven. That's amazing. Summer of seventy seven. And uh, I assume you shot it on film. Uh, shot shot it on on. Uh, uh, black and white, sixteen millimeter. <laughs> That's tremendous. What, uh, is that a film you can still watch today somewhere? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's. Uh, you know, I, I don't 
push it too hard. <laughs> push it too hard. <laughs> I've come away well, since, yeah. but it it you know it got me started. It it's you know sold. It played theaters. It's you know it's hey you know that's fantastic, especially for a first film. Uh, that would have been the 1918 uh, pandemic. It was it was the 1905. Well, actually, it was in in the film. It's 1897, and I forget why that was important. But the the, the it was largely based on what happened during the 1905 yellow, which was the last yellow fever epidemic here. That's a great segue into the lessons we can take from King Creole because uh, it sounds like you said they're trapped in a house together. So it sounds like you're talking limited scope, single location. Limited cast, I mean, doing period on no budget, but, you know, King Creole was, got out of the studio, I think, you know, it's Hal Wallace producing, I mean, as they say, it's people with clout, so they weren't a less prestigious director, they would have shot all that in the studio in, 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 in Los Angeles, I mean, they would not have come to the French Quarter. Yeah, or or if it had been completely independent, it might have been all location. It might have been all side. location, but but in the late fifties, that was hard. That was hard. Mm. When was the Nagra recorder invented? Oh, that's a great point. You know, when did uh, you know cameras that were portable and quiet? Because usually <laughs> you'd only get one or the other. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's a great point. The, my understanding is that the French New Wave, the Nouvelle Vague, uh, came about uh, largely because cameras had gotten to the point they were small enough to be portable, and that's what kicked off the Truffaut-Godard revolution, because it was possible for the first time. It was possible, and they couldn't afford the studios anyway. That's great. Yeah, I, I love how uh, Curtiz makes the film feel, even though it, it's really only got... Like I, like ten characters, maybe maybe twelve. Uh, if you include like real small supporting ones, like those extra gangsters, it really has a, a kind of breath to it. And the uh, it's unclear what how much time the story takes place over, but the escalating sense of doom um, as Walter Matthau systematically like starts taking over Elvis's life is just the stuff of great drama. And you don't need a big budget to do that kind of thing. You just need a strong character with interesting familial connections and, and an ambition. And you can then immediately start throwing opposition into his way. And great performances. Yeah. And yeah. good dialogue, well-written dialogue and great performances. But, mm -hmm. but to that point, you know, the, the, the doom, you know, you know, when it finally, you know, when you're making a movie, you always want the climax to be a climax. Like it, it can't possibly go any further. It has to end you know, it it has to come to a head here. And here's a situation where they get to the end of the road. They get to where they can go no further. And it's shot on a place where you can literally go no further. All those camps on the lakefront, which <laughs> just a few years later all got washed away by Hurricane Betsy. Um, but there are all these, you know, shacks on the end of these long catwalk piers out over the water. And that's where the film comes comes to its uh climax it's like there's no further you can't go you're out oh. over the water and you're you're at, you're not only in the end of the road you're into the walkway <laughs> <laughs> that's right it's like walking a gangplank almost yeah uh, again wonderful screenwriting how the person who saves him in the end is the is the one person he was nice to not the, he's nice to a lot of people, but I'm saying he's the he's, he's, he's nice to everybody <laughs> yeah. because he shows 
you know, mercy and understanding to that kid who's, they call him the dummy because he's a, a deaf mute, you know, and then he ends up saving him at the end. It's, I thought it was a wonderful, very earned kind of moment because there's so much of his good deeds early in the film come back to haunt him. He lets the shark, Vic Morrow's character, take his knife back after he tries to knife him for beating up his brother um, and so on. He lets, you know, he lets him get away. He's, he's not one to like escalate conflict. So like, Although he did punch his brother in the face for simply mocking him. That was, I thought that was you know, a, it's, a lovely it's, thing. It's interesting you say that because something just hit me, which I've seen that movie several times and, and I've never thought of before. But think about when it was made. 1958. I think uh, March. I yeah. Remember. What's going on in 58 with the height of the Cold War? Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're talking about you know, not wanting to escalate the conflict and yet you you can't avoid it mm-hmm. you're only putting off the mm-hmm. inevitable uh you know appeasement doesn't work uh you know and oh, interesting. Here, and here you've got a director who's a refugee you know first from the nazis but but then world war 2 ended and the russians took over hungary and in 56 mm-hmm. invaded hungary with tanks which is my, where michael curtis was from or he was born and where he still had family. So, you know, how there's got to be literature somewhere on some, you know, some grad student wrote a thesis on this because <laughs> it's it, it, you know, two years after the Hungarian uprising was squashed by tanks. You have this Hungarian director making a movie about you have to stand up to him sooner or later. You have to stand up to him. It's a Cold War yeah. film. That's so, and yeah, it's a great parallel. I mean, a great um, parable, or uh, what's the word I want? Allegory. It's like, yeah, it, it does totally work as an allegory in that sense. It's what Elvis did. <laughs> I was really struck on this rewatch on how the songs fit the storyline. In fact, the first song he really sings in full with a band is when he was forced to go on stage by Walter Matthau. And the lyrics of that song are basically him explaining what happened with Carolyn Jones, on, you know, the day before or whatever. It's, I thought, wow, that's really clever. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't always happen. There are a couple of songs that kind of stop the movie dead. But for the most part, I thought there was a, there, it was kind of funny how he used the song to rub the guy's nose in it in a way that the guy probably wouldn't even catch in the moment. I read once that one of the secrets to a successful Broadway musical is the songs always advance the plot. They got to be catchy. They got to be fun. You have to, just like any scene, any good scene in a movie, the situation has to be somewhat different at the end of it than it was at the beginning. And the same is true for a song in, in a musical, uh, which is exactly what you're saying King Creole was doing. They must have really been, I mean, because James Dean, Ben Gazzara, I mean, obviously great actors, but they're not going to be breaking in the song every few minutes. But they found really uh, fascinatingly organic ways to work the singing into the into the stories, like opening with the crawfish and making it a kind of call and response. You have them forcing him to sing his high school song in the club in the in that first scene uh, before he goes to school then you have him forced on stage that and then of course they realize oh he's quite good and then he gets a job singing all of that flows very naturally it's it's good writing <laughs> you know also in the 50s another louisiana film uh, Cecil B. DeMille remade The Buccaneer he had done it in 38 in black and white with Frederick Marsh playing Jean Lafitte 
and then did it again in I think 57, 58, somewhere right in there, um, with Yul Brenner playing Jean Lafitte. The remake started out was going to be a musical because The King and I with Yul Brenner had won the Oscar the year before, and he's going to do it as a musical. And somewhere along the line, the, they can the musical idea. But they still made the movie. I mean, singing pirates has been a Hollywood tradition going way back. I mean, <laughs> I can I can understand the impulse. But I got to I have to see that. That's funny. You're giving me great titles to add to my list. I don't know. You know, this podcast uh, could hypothetically go indefinitely because more movies are being made. But I I was able to more or less off the top of my head and by consulting my old blog, Essential Nola Cinema come up with over a hundred titles but uh those two did not make the list because i didn't even know about them so i'm, I'm really excited to have something uh more to, to watch during my quarantine i mean there there have been cheesy ones there have been iconic ones there have been you know easy writer which ends here i mean one of my all-time favorites is walk on the wild side was that brando no it's no. lawrence harvey oh, capuchin jane fonda plays a prostitute and the madam is barbara stanwick oh wow <laughs> and saul Sorry, no. bass did the opening credits and it is the, perhaps the best opening credits of any movie ever amazing i love saul bass you you have you know things like candy man you know <laughs> yep uh you have things uh the Port of Call, New Orleans. Uh, Bad Lieutenant 2. <laughs> yeah, Bad Lieutenant 2, right. Werner Herzog, yep. Yeah, you had uh, Garrison, JFK did, uh, or, or what's yeah, it? Oliver Stone did JFK. Oh, there's a wonderful scene in JFK where Kevin Cosner walks outside and he starts pointing with his pipe and you realize he's, he's standing in Lafayette Square and he's like, gentlemen, we're in Lafayette Street and right here on the corner of Poitras is, and he just starts explaining the geography of, of where he's standing. And um, this is the FBI building. This is the the federal courthouse. This is the CIA building. This is where in the middle of the, I think, what do you call it? The apparatus of American intelligence gathering in the North North America or something. And I remember I remember thinking, hey, that's where the free concerts are. <laughs> With Richard Widmark, Panic in the Streets, another classic. It, yeah, that one's that one's great, too. That also captures the, the sort of, it's a piece of the French Quarter that is the, like the French market and wharf related side of it. It's a funny thing that both Panic in the Streets and King Creole have these somewhat abrupt endings, I think maybe by modern standards, where they don't really have denouements. There's just a kind of, um, they rush up to the climax and then it's just over. <laughs> yeah, there's you no know? coda. There's no, and they live yeah. happily ever after. No. You never, there's a few kind of dangling questions that uh, had at the end of both of those films in terms of just what happened to the side character or but in a way they you know king creole's part of its great writing is it ties so much of all the side characters fates up to what happens to elvis like for instance the uh the the, the very nice club owner charlie he's gonna marry his sister and without elvis the club may not survive so part of the resolution has to be him returning to that club so that his sister can have a good life and so, and so on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's raising the stakes, raising the stakes. <laughs> yeah. And putting all on that poor kid's back too. Yeah. Even, even his dad too, which is great. I thought the family dynamics were really good. And, and I, I was the first time I watched it, I was more caught up in the gangsterisms and, and the sort of um, club owner or mafia kind of situation. And I kind of wished there had been more about other clubs and and sort of and sort of what kind of prospects a singer would have on Bourbon Street at that time, but this time I was really moved by the 
a struggling father. And in fact, I, I've just done a big James Dean deep dive. I mean, granted, he only made three movies, so it didn't <laughs> take that long, long to, that to, to catch up with them. But <laughs> the uh, dyna- family dynamics are very similar to Rebel Without a Cause um, in, in the sense that you have, according to the masculine norms of the time, a weak father and a, and a very uh, kind of volatile son as a result of of this weak influence on him. But that, again, that is so much of the period when juvenile delinquency, that was the term of art, mm-hmm. ju- juvenile delinquency uh, was front burner. I mean, you also had movies like Blackboard Jungle that treated the same thing. The Wild Ones. The Wild Ones. I mean, difference here uh, from, say, Blackboard Jungle is, I mean, that was from the teacher's point of view. This is very much from the kid's point of view. Indeed, yeah. It's great. I mean, having the family defined by this tragedy, the loss of the mom. Uh, which ends it. It's it's a funny thing because I, uh, I think a modern version would have had the dad stay, you know, sort of in grieving mode for a lot longer. But this, this film, King Creole, really surprised me because the you hear all about the dad for several scenes in the beginning. And then when he shows up, he's actually kind of put himself together. He seems to have come out of the tunnel uh, of depression and he says, oh, I'm getting a job and it's not going to be like that, son. I'm going to work again. You don't have to do all this work yourself and so on. And and so you, it upends your expectations. And then when you see him getting browbeaten in the, in the store later, you realize that he hasn't come as far as he's presenting um, and that the that Elvis is right about his doubts. Yeah, 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 no, good, good storytelling, good storytelling. I think there's wonderful stories to be told about the dynamics of Bourbon Street in terms of the influence of, of money, how artists, uh, singers, musicians are looking for work and they're having to deal with, you know, certain maybe unscrupulous club owners or managers and all of the things, especially if you're a woman, like in the case of Carolyn Jones's character, she was a former singer who became, you know, the plaything, a kept woman by this mobster. I'm surprised there are not more movies about, um, the, you know, surviving on Bourbon Street and, and uh, kind of navigating all of the pressures and temptations and low lives and so forth. It's it seems like a really rich. There's one of uh, area to... one of Peggy Laborde's documentaries is about Bourbon Street. Oh no, kidding. Yeah, and it's uh, you know, it's it's very much a celebration of of, of the golden age when, you know the, you know strippers certainly took their clothes off. I mean, that's the whole point of being, that's why they call it a stripper, but they, they had, they had acts and they had, you know, there was the oyster girl and there was, you know, this one and there was that one. And they, you know, there was, uh, I mean, it was burlesque. It was, uh, uh, yes. Yeah. Burlesque and, and cabaret, right. There's even a line about having a cabaret license in King Korea, which is still a thing to this day. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cabaret's, you know, certainly going back to the days of, of Storyville Red Light District, I mean, cabarets were notorious. Mm. I mean, they were not places you admitted to going. Yeah, it's funny because for a film about Jews in New York, um, they really captured a fascinating kind of virgin horror perception of Catholics against the sex trade. Practically the first line of the film is his sister saying, don't be associating with that, that referring to the dancer across the street. Um, who offers him a, a free dance, and he and Elvis has a great retort. No, no, like he said, I'll, I'll let you dance with me for free, baby. And he says, Nah, you have to pay me. <laughs> and then his <laughs> sister immediately says to stop associating with that. You know, there's there's a there's a very palpable sense of fallen woman versus virtuous woman. 
Oh in, in yeah, the film. and 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 each well personified, but each given, I won't say equal time, but but sort of, you know, both had their virtues. Yeah, definitely. They both have strong points of view. I, th- I you know, I was pleasantly surprised. It's not the Gary Marshall Pretty Woman where where the whore is really the good one. And it's not the, you know, the Cinderella story where the, you know, the, the meek one is, is, is the, you know, held up as the true, I mean, they're, they're, they're both, they they both earn their screen time. Yes, indeed. It's a, it's a, um, yeah, I like those performances a lot. There's the, the, the scene, the first date where Elvis takes her to the hotel room under the pretense of like, there's a party, but then but then no one's there it reminded me so much of the of the Sybil Shepherd date in Taxi Driver where Travis Bickle takes her to a pornographic movie theater um, where it's just you're you're just dying on the inside for that woman she stands her ground you know she doesn't refuses to go in and and he apologizes and come he even gives her a fake name and then almost immediately says no here's my real name uh, you know I I'm sorry it's um it's interesting. You feel like he he's definitely been under some bad influences in terms of how to treat women and and what to expect and so forth. But uh, he's he's also got a, a an older sister who's kind of raising him as like a a surrogate mom and an old fashioned dad who's to kind of balance the seedy influence. And it's it's a, it's a he plays that that dilemma really well. It's something like having an angel and a devil on each shoulder kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Yep, 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 yep. Another thing I thought watching it uh, was in terms of great lessons for for filmmakers is is how you take uh, a neighborhood. You, nobody has to say we're in the French Quarter. This is Bourbon Street, etc. But you 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 feel it very palpably, and then you start to understand that the the rules this main character is, is dealing with and negotiating as, as as and struggling with over the course of the story are are actually not like particular to uh one person but are actually kind of more like the cultural norms of the area and so you can you can tell you a lot about a neighborhood or or a subculture um simply through the the machinations of the plotting without having to do any kind of exposition and and likewise they they managed to convey walter matthau's menace without you know without a whole lot of overt violence i mean it wasn't completely free of that but it wasn't you know, imagine, you know, imagine mm. a modern movie, you know, that have been a body count. Yeah, no, you're right. It, just to make point. the point that he, this guy's dangerous. There's a the first time we meet him, he has this wonderful line. He says, oh, yeah. So after it's right after he forces Elvis to sing and then Elvis gets off the stage and that other club owner offers him a job. And and then he comes up and says, hey, Charlie, what are you doing in my club? You know, and he's and he says, oh, I'm just offering this kid a job. You know, he says, I saw him first. And Mathau retorts to him in a, in a kind of thesis statement for this character. He says, yes, you usually do see him first, but I always get him in the end. You get a sense that this is a person who is not only ready to use violence and intimidation, but also is very cunning and has a way of, of identifying weaknesses in people and a way of getting under their skin so that the, the threat he poses is not purely physical, but it's also kind of like a spiritual threat, too. Yesterday, I was watching a Showtime series called Billions about a I've heard good things. hedge fund, you know, and essentially it's the Walter Matthau character, but he's the hero. Oh, 
his his methods are just as bad. He's just as tough. He's just as ruthless. He's just as heartless. But he's the hero. Is he fighting Wall Street? Is that what makes him the hero? No, no. He's the hero because it's set up for us to want him to win. But the stuff he's doing, I mean, is is unconscionable. I mean, several times per uh-huh. episode, just ruining people's lives and, and just, you know, just no holes barred and stuff. Um, whereas, huh. you know, again, 1958, you would not have done, you know, even, even in the, again, back to Jean Lafitte and the Buccaneer, he was, uh, you know, a pirate, but he was a good pirate. You know, his heart was in the <laughs> right place. He was the way he was portrayed. Uh, they certainly never mentioned him smuggling slaves, which is how he made mo- actually made most of his money. And yet, in those fifty years that have passed, sixty years that have passed since you know since making King Creole, you know we we can take that same character and and hold have him held up as 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 a role model essentially. It's quite a, quite a change in culture. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, the fifty late fifties. You really got me thinking about the Cold War, um, and and where this film falls. It's like the end of the studio era in Hollywood. You, I mean, fifty seven, I believe, was when Sputnik went up, and people really started to freak out. Um, I think the Russians got the nuke in what fifty four, fifty five, something like that. They they, um, they moved into Hungary in fifty six. I mean, re- reconquered it, and then. Mm. Czechoslovakia in 67, reconquered it. Right. Khrushchev banging a shoe at the UN. We will bury you. We will bury you. It's interesting. Yeah, all of that feeds in. And also the classic Cold War film, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Oh, right. Right around then, too, wasn't it? Wasn't it 57, 58? Uh, It's a great question. I I think so. I think it was maybe even earlier because I want to say 54... When was uh, Failsafe, uh, Sidney Lumet? I think that was a little later. You see, that that marked a turn because it was it was start, starting to look at the dangers of going too far with the Cold War. I don't think you'd have had that in the 50s. Interesting. Uh, invasion of the Body Snatchers was 56. Yep. 56, yeah. It's and McCarthy and all of that was, you know. That's right, yeah, the McCarthy era. The film stands at this really interesting multiple generational cultural edges it's it's only a couple years after the the dawn of elvis i think his first singles were in 56 he had made a couple of movies but nothing really like prestigious they were kind of kids films until this point then we're also on the edge of the acting revolution with brando and right right that that whole uh desire talk about new orleans uh french quarter film exactly right um and you have the studio system which is moving but there's now the french new wave is kicking in the italian neorealist movement is kicking in a lot of things were changing quickly at the end of that television's Um, kicking in television too that's right of course yeah the the big threat to this the studios yeah this is when they're starting to go widescreen and cinemascope and this and that there's something about King Creole that really feels independent to me, independently spirited, but it's also something about the scale of it and, and the use of locations and, and so forth. It feels open and it and it's dealing with lawlessness in this very straightforward way. It's not moralizing in, in the way that it would, would have had to, you know, during the Hayes Code era and so forth. It's, it's a very, it, it has a, a kind of refreshing 
Honestly. grittiness for a studio picture. Yeah, great. That's perfect. Yeah, grittiness. Yeah, it's it's got real texture to it and and yeah the morality just isn't cut and dry like the way studio films had been yeah right right like the, the good girl and the bad girl were they were both they were equal yeah. and that's fine both valid yes um well cool i like to wrap up um i want to you know thank you for coming on and uh, thank you for all the work you do mentoring filmmakers at the old firehouse it's, yeah there's um, some exciting stuff going here now it's uh it's been a little quiet lately but even even during the pandemic people are coming in they're using the courtyard to film and stuff it's uh, uh ricky lee jones yeah yeah <laughs> she she did a thing uh last week there's something coming up next week and uh and i just finished my book the novel i've been working on for 14 years now oh my god congratulations yeah we'll drop on amazon on friday so what's the title advice from the wicked beautiful Cool. Well, it'll be out by the time I post this episode. So, um, advice for the wicked by Mr. Glenn from, from the wicked. Oh, even better. <laughs> it reminds me a little bit of the Devil's Dictionary by Ambrose Bierce. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's fantastic. And uh, and of course, your movies. Uh, Bell Bell the Cajun was the the one that uh, you, you consider it your most famous film. You know, it depends who you talk to. Uh, if if South Louisiana, it's probably Bell the Cajun. Then there's the whole hurricane on the bayou crowd, you know, from the IMAX movie about Katrina. Uh, you know, and then the musician community liked American Creole, which was, you know, uh, a, a music doc, uh, you know. And then there are people in L.A., the Lionsgate release man who came back. So that one, you know, mm. remember they So it's, it depends on, on who you talk to. I'll claim them all. <laughs> Roger Ebert called you the father of regional cinema, right? C Cajun cinema. It's a wonderful thing. That article he wrote about Belzeres, he talks about the importance of regional cinema and how he thinks it's really important to the overall health of, of filmmaking that people can tell stories about the unique cultures they come from without having to, you know, put everything into the, the big capitalist machine. Which in the late 70s, early 80s was a big... You know, indie film was just sort of, I mean, there had always been an independent cinema, but independent cinema as we think of it today was really cranking up because those cameras that became portable for the new wave uh, became much more portable. <laughs> and people started coming out of college with enough skills to make a decent, watchable, technically watchable movie, whereas previously it, it pretty been almost exclusively the the apprentice system i mean you had to uh you had to go to yeah, hollywood and learn and, and basically have an uncle who was in the union so you could get in the union <laughs> and you could you know, learn that trade and heaven help you if you were your uncle was a grip and you wanted to be a gaffer i mean you couldn't switch i mean that was mm. and all of a sudden people are learning skills and the equipment's there and it's 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 out and you can use it and you can record sound a subset of that was this regional thing i mean that first thing i did yellow fever reason I shot black and white was because there was a film that came out the year before called Northern Lights set in North Dakota in the teens. And it's in black and white. Half of it's in Norwegian and Swedish, you know, American movie. You know, so those those things were creeping up. And, and you had, you know, when I was getting started, you had, you know, I was working here. You had uh, Victor Nunez out of Tallahassee. Sure. We did Gal Youngin and, and you know, all these things. And you had Eagle Pinnell out of Houston, 
who did uh, last night at the Alamo and things. So you had different pockets of America. And when Sundance started, I mean, I got into the director's lab on like, I think it was their second year, their third year. Mm. It was regional. And it's, you know, Robert Redford said, you know, this we want to push this. We want to push this. So not all of the handful of projects they chose that year were, but a couple of us were representing the hinterlands. <laughs> That's amazing. And now it's spread all over. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I wonder on a future uh, date, I'd love to, when maybe after the pandemic, I'd sit down and, and talk about the where, where uh, filmmaking is going in this this moment we're having where the technology has created a proliferation of uh, everyone can make a film. Everyone's got an HD camera in their phone. And yet there, there's so little time in the day and there's and there's this kind of uh, accelerated homogenization of American culture. I'll leave you one last thought, which is what I always tell the young filmmaker. They say, you are so lucky compared to me, because when I was getting started, it was so hard to make a movie. You needed to buy film and you were, you know, you were in, in, enthralled to the laboratory and you couldn't negotiate with Kodak. And, and, you know, the equipment was so expensive and you couldn't find people who knew how to use it and all this stuff. You're so lucky. But you were so <laughs> unlucky compared to when I was started. Because when I was getting started, if you made something halfway decent, people noticed it. They wrote about it. They flew you here and there. I mean, and now you can make, you can be the next Stanley Kubrick and you can't get eyeballs to watch it because there's just so much stuff out there. And a lot of it's good. And even what's not good at least looks good. You know, even what, you know, even what's missing on story is, you know, you can get a technically, you know, slick look on for a dime. Yeah, that's such a good point. Yeah. It's, I, I, I'm always stressing uh, screenwriting on these episodes because it's such a it's like kind of free value. It's in a way it's, you know, it's and it's often the thing missing with, with so much of the modern films that have they have all the cameras and all the <laughs> toys and great digital CGI post-production uh, work and and but they don't tell the stories stories don't cost you anything except imagination and time one last bit i said that was the last one but this is the very last one there was michael curtis was hungarian and there were so many hungarians fleeing the nazis and coming to hollywood that there was i think it was paramount it was one of the studios i think it was paramount but there was uh Evidently, a sign up in the writer's building that said, it's not enough to be Hungarian. You also need an ending. <laughs> so the script well, I... was important then, too. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, fa fantastic way to final note for this episode. Um, thank you so much again. I could talk to you all night, but I, I won't keep you any longer. Everyone go watch Glenn's movies. Louisiana Music Factory has them all. They're, it's uh Support local, shop local, boycott Amazon, etc. Yes, no, buy his book on Amazon. Buy the book. Yes, buy the book on Amazon. Rice from the Wicked, only on Amazon. <laughs> awesome, awesome. I'm going to go buy that right now. All right, thanks again. Bye. Subscribe! Rate, review, tell your friends, etc.